Welcome to the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, and I'm here to tell you about some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters that have made an impact on the Central California Valley community. Are you ready to hear a notorious Bakersfield story? Good. Let's get started. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. I hope you're following Notorious Bakersfield on your podcast app. We're listed on just about every app that's available. You can also listen to Notorious Bakersfield on NotoriousBakersfield.com and follow our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I mentioned this on the last episode and wanted to give you another heads up. I'm working on a self-paced audio driving Halloween tour. This tour will take you to a few of the crime scene locations I've discussed on the Notorious Bakersfield podcast and will include some locations I haven't yet covered. And in keeping with the Halloween theme, I'll also throw in some of Bakersfield's allegedly haunted locations. This tour will be a paying service, so if you wanted to support Notorious Bakersfield, this is a perfect opportunity to do so. I'll be giving more details about this tour in the coming week, so keep your ears open. During the summer of 1952, Bakersfield, actually most of Kern County, experienced an earthquake and a string of aftershocks that forever changed our city's landscape. Besides the tragic loss of lives, the earthquake altered downtown Bakersfield's architecture that took shape immediately following the quake. The opulent Kern County courthouse that sat on the corner of Truxton and Chester Avenue was so severely damaged that it was necessary to demolish it and start anew. In their quest to get government services back on its feet as soon as possible, county and city leaders overseeing the reconstruction adopted simple architectural plans that prioritized time rather than design. These plans were also influenced by the mid-century styles and colors that were popular for that period. That once opulent courthouse with its domed roof and massive, impressive columns was replaced by a drab square building adorned with a gray and seafoam green color scheme. The clock tower that sat in the middle of the intersection at 17th and Chester, an iconic landmark that gave downtown Bakersfield its unique character, was damaged beyond repair and needed to be demolished completely. This summer is the 69th anniversary of that earthquake, and this week specifically is the anniversary of when Bakersfield experienced the most devastation from that earthquake. At 4.52 a.m. on July 21, 1952, the southern San Joaquin Valley was jolted awake by a large earthquake. It was the strongest earthquake in California since the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. The earthquake occurred on the White Wolf Fault that runs along the Tejon Hills to the Tehachapi Mountains. In 1952, the science used to measure earthquakes isn't what it is today. I've seen figures attributed to this quake from 7.1 to 7.8. Seismologists place the intensity at 7.2. Most residents of Bakersfield felt this earthquake. There were many buildings that had significant structural damage, and several people were injured. 
The biggest spectacle near Bakersfield was about 15 miles south of town where oil tanks and a refinery erupted in flames. But Tehachapi was the Kern County community that suffered the most on July 21st. Twelve people in Tehachapi lost their lives. Five people from one family, the Quintana family, died. Most of the mountain communities downtown was left in ruins. Like all earthquakes, this one was followed by dozens of aftershocks. Ten aftershocks measured five or higher. The last aftershock that measured above five occurred on August 22nd, one month after the main shock. It measured 5.8, and it's one that caused the most damage in Bakersfield. Or it just completed the destruction that the July 21st main quake started. Bakersfield residents were still cleaning and repairing damage from the July 21st earthquake. Many of the structures that had been damaged still hadn't been evaluated for structural integrity, but most people felt the worst was behind them, that although there was still damage and repairs to make, they could start moving forward with life. That sense of optimism was jolted to reality when the White Wolf Fault contracted again at 3.41 p.m. August 22, 1952. It was a Friday just before closing time for many businesses. Bakersfield residents filled retail stores doing their last-minute weekend shopping. Buildings that had light to moderate damage in the initial earthquake were now damaged beyond repair, and their future was no longer in doubt. The human toll, while considered light, was tragic nonetheless. Two people were fatally injured. One was a 20-year-old young lady named Edna Ledbetter from McFarland. She was killed at Lerner's Clothing Shop on 19th Street. The other fatality was a 67-year-old gentleman named Patman Osby. He was killed at Kern Machinery on East 19th Street, where he was employed. Why did the August 22nd 5.8 aftershock cause so much more damage in Bakersfield than the original, much larger quake measured in the sevens a month earlier? That was my main curiosity about this 1952 earthquake sequence. So I turned to my friend, Emily Fisher, a local geologist who is passionate about earth science and is generous about sharing their knowledge and wisdom. You may be familiar with Emily from KGET 17 News, where they provide earthquake analysis whenever an earthquake makes the news. I was able to ask Emily my main question, and they indulged me and answered several other questions I had regarding earthquakes in general. The main earthquake was a 7.2 which hit, that struck July 21st, 1952, and it was west of Fraser Park, correct? At the, yeah. At the White Wolf Fault? That's exactly it. And I've heard a few different ranges, depending on who you ask yeah. for the magnitude. Um, and that's because it was in 52. We didn't have seismometers. So when you're trying to, to figure out the magnitude, the scale of earthquakes at that time, today we measure them with seismometers, but back then, some, there's a little guesswork in exactly how big they are. So I've heard as high as 7.7. Um, and it makes sense why there's a little bit of range. But yeah, we absolutely know that it, it happened on the White Wolf Fault, 
which is sort of just south of Bakersfield, very close to that Fraser Park area. What I find fascinating is that the aftershock that caused the damage in Bakersfield was a 5.8 on August 22nd. Um, why, why, why did that happen? Why was it a smaller aftershock, yet it caused so much more damage in Bakersfield versus the initial one a few weeks before? That's such a good question, because a lot of times the things that cause damage um, are not necessarily how big the earthquake is, um, but are how the buildings are built and what direction they are and what sediments are underneath you. Um, so for one thing, where earthquakes happen, um, if it's right underneath you, you're going to get the most intense shaking. And that's one of the things that happened that aftershock. There was the initial shock um, that, that happened on the White Wolf Fault. This, the, that one that you mentioned, that aftershock was a little bit closer to Bakersfield. And a lot of times you'll, you'll have one giant shake and then all these aftershocks are kind of settling the whole area. So that one was a little bit closer to Bakersfield and all the buildings were, were damaged in the first one. So after the, you know, seven something uh, earthquake, the, the foundations were messed up already. So you had smaller, but closer onto buildings that had already had, you know, some cracking, some damage, some sort of things that had happened. So it, they get a, a one, two. And uh, on top of that, the frequency makes a big difference. So if I'm sure you've seen images um, of sound, right, that have these big, long waves and the higher frequencies are much um, higher, faster ones. The earth does the exact same thing that we have different frequencies in these earthquakes. So those little squiggle lines, right, that we see on seismometers, the frequency for that aftershock was just right. That hit a harmonic frequency for buildings that were one to two stories high. Uh, and there's actually, so you, if you've ever seen, like you're driving on the highway and you have an antenna um, and it bobs a little bit, and then all of a sudden you hit a certain speed and that little antenna goes absolutely crazy. That's what it's like to hit the harmonic frequency. So that aftershock was just the right sort of thing to, to shake those buildings like crazy um, and to cause so much more damage. And there's actually different areas where you can predict what frequency they are. So there's regulations in Japan that you can't have buildings of a certain height because it hits their harmonic frequency. Is there Are there any characteristics of the 1952 quake that stand out to you that differentiate itself from other earthquakes or yeah, um, that one, the the White Wolf Fault goes parallel to the Garlock Fault. Uh, and if you you know look at a map of California, there's this kind of east-west like stripe that goes down. It's the south end of Bakersfield. You go over it if you go over the grapevine. And then there's like this line, right, where it separates um, the, the south of the Sierras from um, the Mojave Desert, right? So that is the trace of the, the Garlock Fault. And the White Wolf just runs parallel to it. The Garlock Fault is just weird. It is unlike the rest of California. So it goes, um, we call it left lateral. So if you're on one side of the fault and you're looking at the other side, if it goes left in comparison to where you're standing, it's left lateral, the same for right lateral. All the other faults in California are right lateral. Um, except for the Garlock. Most of the other faults, um, they trend north-south, right? That's just parallel to the valley, not the Garlock. It goes east-west. 
And I'm, I'm a geologist. I've been a geologist in California for over 10 years now. I have not heard a really good explanation for why the Garlock Fault goes east-west, what's going on with like how odd it is. I think it's one of the, um, the great mysteries that we still have in, in geology in California. So it's not totally understood. Um, and I think especially the, the earthquake, 52 earthquake on that White Wolf Fault um, was a lot bigger than people would expect, right? To have something that's a you know 7.2, 7.5 on that fault was unexpected because usually um, there's a calculation that you have the distance, the length that the fault is, and longer faults have the potential to have bigger earthquakes, right? So if you've got an earthquake that ruptures all the way down, you know, half of California, they don't really do that. But if you have one that ruptures like a, a much bigger distance, you can be, get a bigger earthquake on it. Whereas if your fault is a little tiny, right, you're only going to get a much smaller magnitude. There's calculations that uh, seismologists will do, and I've done it in class, uh, to figure out what what's the scale, what's the hazard that we have in this area. Everyone was kind of surprised. The White Wolf Fault isn't that long at the surface. Um, so it was bigger than expected. So I think that's the Garlock being super weird. Um, and huh, I wouldn't think that to be such a, a dangerous sort of fault or some of the things that are a little bit um, surprising about that one. If an earthquake of that magnitude hit today, we'd be much better off because we've got earthquake building codes. Um, and that's why um, earthquakes here end up doing less damage today um, then they do, they had some earthquakes um, in Oklahoma recently, but they're not built for earthquakes. So little 3.0 magnitude quakes caused huge amounts of property damage there because they're not built for it. Um, so a lot of times you don't, um, you don't want rigid structures. So the 52 earthquake, a lot of the damage was in concrete buildings because when the, when the ground rolls, the concrete crumbles. Whereas if you're in a, a wooden house, it just kind of flexes and moves and ends up being just fine. Okay. The, the most recent earthquake, the earthquake that hit Ridgecrest and the desert area of, of uh, Kern County, July 4th, uh, 2019, was a foreshock to the larger quake a few days later. How often does that happen where the foreshock is smaller than subsequent shocks? And it's it, the nomenclature that we use, something being a foreshock or an aftershock, all that sort of it, um, it almost creates a little bit of a, a misnomer because the only thing that makes an earthquake a foreshock or an aftershock is if something happens after it. So if those two earthquakes had happened, I know, further apart, um, the, the, the foreshock, cause I think it was the, it was the fourth and the fifth, right. That, that would have been just the earthquake, right. If we hadn't had like the one the next day. Um, but there is something about once you have a, a, a really, you know, much bigger earthquake than, than typical. And we have hundreds and thousands of earthquakes all the time, every day. They're just usually too small to notice. Once you have one that's really significant, you get hundreds of thousands of aftershocks and you kind of, the plates move a little bit, right? So there, I think after the Ridgecrest earthquake, we saw several feet of movement and that strike slip so Bakersfield got just a little bit further north. I think it was like five feet um, further north than, you know, the, the rest of the, the U.S. Um, so once you move that much on one, like, fault, the whole system, like, 
um, gets a little bit more pressure. So sometimes it causes an earthquake just a little bit down the line as the whole area settles. Um, so you know you're going to get a whole bunch of earthquakes, but which ones are going to be bigger? Those larger magnitudes that we're going to feel. Um, they're higher, but like um, I think the the probability of getting that earthquake was only six percent, right? That after one big one, that you're going to have decent sized earthquakes nearby. How far off are we from accurately accurately predicting an earthquake? Oh gosh. Um, it's really hard to say. I don't know if it's possible. Um, right. Cause our, our predictions are give or take a few hundred years, but geologic time and geologic scales, we're, we're talking millions of years, right. Or, or hundreds of years for absolutely everything. So I don't know. And it's almost like a chaos theory thing that there's so many different factors that I don't know if it's possible, but also I, I, I don't want to, um, change science short in general, that geology is a new science, right? Compared to to chemistry or microbiology or or something like that. Um, So the plate tectonics um, theory really revolutionized how we think about geology. Um, And it's probably from the fifties originally and took a few years to get established. So um, the way we think about geology today is pretty darn new. And seismology um, as far as installing seismometers and fiddling with those databases on a global scale is even more new. It's probably not till the 70s that we had huge networks installed that were all connected to each other. So all that to say the science is so new and moving pretty fast. Um, it, it might be in a few decades, we've got much better prediction systems uh, than we have, if it's possible. But one thing that the that I think is truly impressive is right, right. It's only in the seventies that we kind of figured out how to set up seismometers and map where earthquakes are and all that sort of thing. We now have early warning systems. Um, so it should show up on everyone's phone automatically, but you can get the MyShake app, um, which it's Caltech and um, the California USGS got together um, to have a warning system. So that P wave that I was talking about before, when an earthquake happens, um, they will send you an alert earthquakes on its way, drop cover, hold, um, to your phone while those damaging waves are on their way to you. So if you're really close, there's, there's no helping it, but if you're really far away, um, like Ridgecrest, if the system had been available at that time, it would have sent you a text being like earthquakes coming, drop cover, hold, um, in the seconds that that wave is on its way to you. So it would be just, it's not like five minutes before the earthquake. It's a few seconds. 20 to 30 seconds is about what you get. Do we know where all the faults are in California? Are there, is there a possibility that there, um, we could have earthquake on a fault that wasn't previously known? Absolutely. Most faults in California don't come to the surface, which means we don't know where most faults are. Um, so it's, it's called being a blind fault when, uh, the fault is underground and doesn't come all the way up to the surface. Cause traditionally the only time we can map it right to know where it is, is when it comes to the surface. So if it's underground, the only way that you can see that it's there is through seismic data. And there's two different kinds of seismic. There's waiting for earthquakes to happen and then recording, oh, there was an earthquake right there and earthquakes happen on faults. 
Uh, and then you can go through and, oh, there it is. And if you have enough earthquakes on a fault, you can map underground, like exactly where the trace is. But if it's not moving, it's kind of hard to tell where it is. The other kind of seismic um, is the one where it's it's active, where they take these either um, use explosions or these thumpers um, that go out and they send waves down into the earth and then they bounce back in a certain way that give you seismic information about what's down there. Sometimes you can pull out faults from those, but there's a little bit of uh, interpretation to it. So again, both those are pretty new to science. Um, and a lot of the, the regulations, a lot of trying to figure out, um, you know, the, the risk to people um, is based on the faults that come to the surface. So I know a lot of the rules are you can't build a house within um, a certain distance from the surface expression of a fault. So you can go in the Bay Area and kind of zoom around on satellite images and be like, man, there must be a fault there because it's the only place without a row of houses. Um, but most faults aren't, aren't vertical, right? They dip a little bit. So the fault might be right underneath your house, but um, that doesn't go straight to the surface. But there's not enough data to know where all the faults are underground. So I know um, when we had the, the Ridgecrest earthquake, those were not on mapped faults. Um, and a whole bunch of faults came to the surface after that event. And we um, and the USGS went crazy, like zooming out there and getting rulers and measuring offset on uh, roads, especially, um, and mapped up a whole new bunch of faults, like after that instance, that didn't come to the surface before. That's interesting and scary. Yep, <laughs> that's... Uh... Yep, that's very, very true for uh, for what we have in California. The, the comforting part is we know where the fault zones are for the most part, right? So we've, you know, got the line over on um, the San Andreas Fault. We know where the Garlock is just to our south. Um, and then where a lot of the motion, right, the, um, the Eastern California Shear Zone is the new San Andreas Fault, so that's where the Ridgecrest earthquake happened. It's everything kind of out in Owens Valley off towards the, the whole basin and range um, uh, system over there. So a lot more movement. It used to be the San Andreas Fault. It's kind of stepping further east. So we can expect a lot more earthquakes everywhere, um, but even more so out in, in Owens Valley kind of area. Uh, what are some of the misconceptions about earthquakes? Especially here in Bakersfield, um, one of the things I get people are like, oh, am I going to get beachfront property? <laughs> and for better or for worse, I don't know where you stand on uh, on the valley filling up. Like, no, we're not going to get beachfront property again. Um, but for one, we we used to 23 million years ago. Uh, this was all an inland ocean. Um, so that's why we have oil reserves in California. That's why we have a special rock called diatomite is it used to be an ocean and the Megalodon, right? The giant shark um, here that we've got at the, the Buena Vista Museum, all that, like we used to be an isolated, tiny ocean in the valley. Um, so you have beachfront property. You're just 23 million years late to it. <laughs> um, the valley is not going to fill in um, and earthquakes. Our earthquakes are mostly moving side to side, the strike slip one. So in a few million years, San Francisco is going to become a suburb of Los Angeles. We have to wait a few million years. Yeah, a few million years. <laughs> um, 
I think that was the number one. We're not going to get beachfront property. Um, there's, there's no predictors. I've heard earthquake weather that there, when people are like, Oh, it's cloudy and there's lightning that, um, there may be a coincidence that that's happened before that there's certain weather conditions, but there's, there's no such thing as, as earthquake weather. Um, it would be lovely if we could predict, um, things like that, but there's not a predictor that's, that's useful for us. Um, an earthquake, I get people who are like, oh, there's like a whole bunch of earthquakes happening. What does it mean? And I'm like, well, it, it means that we live in a tectonically active area. Um, and I know people are like, because we had a, a kind of quiet period, right? Over the past, it, before 2019, it was like 10 years, um, right? Where we didn't have a whole lot of earthquakes. That was weird for us to have a quiet period of time. It is much more common and much more expected for us to be having decent-sized earthquakes uh, every once in a while. I'd like to thank Emily Fisher for taking the time to sit down with me and explaining earthquakes um, to a layperson, something that, that uh, my junior high teachers couldn't do. So I appreciate their um, generosity with their knowledge. Thanks again, Emily Fisher. And the resources used for this episode were the Bakersfield, California, and the LA Times, the Caltech um, website, and the Associated Press. And of course, Emily Fisher. And we'll see you back, or you'll hear me next Tuesday when a new episode of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast is released. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.